I think uh, a big thing that helped at some point was I defeated Magnus Carlsen unknowingly in this like Leech House title arena. It was the first time we ever played and he was playing anonymously. I found out after the fact it was him that I had beaten. What was what was his uh, handle? It was Man with a Van. Man with a Van. He I was mean, playing from a van. Like, he apparently was playing on mobile. We're recording, right? Yep. Okay. I think I, we're I, on. I love, you just like, jump into it. Like intros, just like I, I think we're on. Organic yeah. and nice. Eric, uh, first of all, let's talk about your beginnings in the world of chess. Sure. Take us through the first few years of chess. How did you start playing chess? Yeah, I started when I was seven. I was on a family vacation in the Bahamas, and uh, there was a chessboard in the hotel library. And um, older brother, who was 12 at the time, um, knew the rules, and uh, he ended up teaching me. And from the moment I learned, I was like very hooked. Like I had a pretty long attention span for a seven-year-old. Like I'd spend hours just doing jigsaw puzzles when I was younger, so chess was like kind of a natural fit. And yeah, when we got back from the family vacation, I was like bugging my parents to find like a chess class to go to and they found one in a local park district and um i attended and i started like beating all the kids there like okay they weren't very good but it's also beating my older brother and then uh eventually we found out about tournaments and played my first competition when i was eight what did you like and about chess first the strategic aspect the tactics uh the melees the uh uh what what attracted to it i guess yeah, it's. I think it was a mix of things, but I, I liked the the problem solving nature, like the way it made me think there, there was just infinite possibilities and um, something about just the the problem solving nature. And um, I was also like pretty competitive at a young age too. So it was the competitiveness of it so, as well. Yeah, between competition and then also just trying to figure things out on your own and being in uh, in your own control too. Um, so once, yeah, once I got into tournaments, I like pretty much didn't stop playing. For me, it was also a lot about the social aspect of it. The fact that I was going to the club and playing young players as well, peers of mine, um, and making new friends, basically. Was that a part of it as well for you? Oh, definitely. And probably even more so these days. Like when I was younger, it was more about improving and competing. But these days, it's so much of chess is social and using it as a vehicle for traveling and seeing new places. And um, yeah, it's uh, I think the, the social component is just more of a draw for me these days than actually like trying to attain the grandmaster title or um, competing at a high level. What was like your the first biggest success that you remember as a, as a young chess player? Yeah, so when I was nine, I won the Illinois third grade state championship. And I, I really liked collecting chess trophies. Uh, so I got a trophy that was like almost as tall as me. And um, maybe you can relate, Fabi, because oh, I yeah. know you've played the, some of these scholastic events. And remember one competition, like it was in Rosemont, Illinois. I think your name was like on the top of the... I don't, I don't remember many of the youth tournaments in the U.S. Uh -huh. Like, I don't have a very, I just recall, like, random moments from them. I don't have a very precise recollection of them, but I do remember the trophies, and I was a small kid. Right. So they towered over me, and I was, like, always, people were making jokes, like, the trophy's bigger than you. And so I remember, because we had those huge plastic trophies that were always, like, we all wanted to get one of them. 
yeah, they weren't necessary. I think they've down, downsized them a little bit since uh, maybe the last few years, but those were a huge motivating factor to yeah. uh, like try and improve and then uh, build up my display of trophies in my bedroom. And um, yeah, over time, I think I stopped caring about the trophies and like there are more important things, but uh, it was nice to especially compete at like state and national level. And um, yeah, it's so cool to hear the fact that this is a big difference, I think, between uh, North America and Europe, because you guys are uh, talking about the size of the trophies. We mm -hmm. don't see that in Europe. You usually get these like super small trophies, maybe a bit of shine here and there, but you don't get these big plasticky ones. And for a kid, I guess the size of it is extremely important, right? And motivating, as you guys are mentioning. Oh, have you seen Searching for Bobby Fischer? I have not, actually. Okay, so this is like the... Like Obviously, the, I, I know about it. most iconic I, I chess movie, right? Yeah. At least from the past. Absolutely, yeah. And there are like all these scenes of like the the actor who is portraying Josh Waitzkin carrying like these huge trophies and like they're bigger than him, right? So so that kind of got famous from that. And, and it is actually pretty accurate from what I remember as a, as a chess playing kid. Um, yeah, the trophies were always a big motivator. And now I don't have any of them. Like, I didn't <laughs> Did you get rid of them? Or? I just, we moved so much that mm -hmm. I have no idea where they are. They got lost somewhere, uh, somewhere along the way. Yeah, uh, I recently got rid of a bunch, uh, like cleaning out of my old childhood bedroom. And uh, I've kept some, though, like national championship trophies. Are you trophies. kidding me? I mean, somebody has Fabiano Carona and Eric Rosen's childhood trophies. They can probably sell them for like millions in a few years. I think that might be a bit optimistic. <laughs> Actually, I noticed that you had a uh, bug, bug house, house trophy, bug house yeah. trophy which I, th I think is very cool because I never played a bug house tournament, but I uh, loved it as a kid and, and also now. So I'm, I'm pretty jealous that... Like, bug house tournaments playing. are like super rare, but like usually just at the grade school nationals and yeah, one at one year. So holding on to that one. Very, very cool. So uh, what was your biggest success early on in your childhood that kind of kept you going on this path? Yeah, I think there were there were a handful of like memorable experiences. Um, I think a big one was uh, it was like a freshman in high school. I played the U.S. Junior Open Championship. Uh, it was in Wisconsin, and I had tied for first. And the winner moves on to the U.S. Junior Clothes Championship. Um, so I played an Armageddon game against uh, a player by the name of Kevin Boo, who I don't think is active anymore. But I won that Armageddon game. And then the next year, the US Junior closed was in St. Louis for the first time. And it was the most amazing tournament I had ever played in because I mean, the chess club, like they, they gave players just incredible conditions, got a suite at the Chase Hotel. Uh, there was some appearance fee for travel. There was a stipend for food. They gave all the players new laptops. Oh, wow. And uh, they took us to like this professional tennis tournament on the rest day of the event. They had a block party that year. I think it was 2010. They were celebrating their two-year anniversary. So that was early on since the inception of the St. Louis Chess Club. I think the inception was like 2008, 2009. Yeah. I think so. Um, but uh, yeah, they had the U.S. Women's Championship that year too. Uh, and they were doing like the full broadcast. Um, Jen Shahadi, yep. Ben Feingold, and Hikaru were the commentators. Hikaru was doing commentary. Yeah, <laughs> just at the beginning of the end, because I think midway through he was like traveling. Um, but yeah, it was like broadcast on livestream.com, like before the age of Twitch yep. and YouTube. And I think the the VODs of that are saved somewhere on some hard drive. 
Um, but it was a super cool experience. And um, I think I was very fortunate to just qualify because I had won this Armageddon game the year before. Um, but So at this point, were you seeing yourself as a chess professional? Oh, not at all. I mean, I, I was uh, maybe rated like 2200 at that time. And I was playing with, I mean, it was a tournament with uh, like Ray Robson, Sam Shankland, Darwin Yang, who was very strong at the time. Um, so I was still trying to like climb the ranks and uh, I just improve as a player, especially in, in high school. Um, so yeah, like my, my long-term path at that point wasn't really figured out, but I was trying to just take advantage of the opportunities I was given. And I, I finished pretty decently at that tournament, um, at like 50% and all of my, my opponents were higher rated than me. So um, that definitely was kind of some fuel to keep going and keep improving. And I think you also mentioned uh, that you were in high school at that point. You were already thinking about college and where to go and what to do. Were you having any uh, career paths uh, set up for yourself outside of chess or were you looking? Because we know in the U.S., and this is also specific to the U.S., you have these scholarship uh, colleges. Were you thinking about attending one of those? What was the plan at that point? Yeah, I had a very difficult decision to make my, like, junior year of high school when it was time to decide where I wanted to go to college, I was offered a full ride to UT Dallas. Mm. Um, That's where I went. I know. Yeah. yeah I, I yeah. think I visited uh, at some point, like they, they gave me a whole tour of the campus and I what sat was that? in 2011. Because I came to UT Dallas 2010, but I don't uh, remember seeing I'm trying you. to remember if you were there. I mean, Sodoro was I there. was definitely there. I was definitely there. I'm not I sure. I think you what... were there. Yes. I don't know if you had like were there that day, but um... I was definitely there. So I went from 2010 to 2014. Okay. But I don't remember uh, seeing them giving you the tour. Probably that was Rade, the coach, and, and Jim Stallings. Stallings. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was like it was a super tempting offer. Um, but I also got into University of Illinois, which uh, just had a good program um, in math and computer science which at the time I thought was a good major to pursue. And I had already a lot of high school friends going there. So I decided to turn down the full ride and attend University of Illinois um, for a couple of years. But to be honest, like even by the time I was attending college, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And after a couple of years at Illinois, I, I realized like the major I was pursuing wasn't right for me. Um, like I was more into like more, more front end, like design and media and photography and the computer science and math. It was a little bit, I mean, I enjoyed it or parts of it, but it was very theoretical and not so much like hands-on. Um, so I ended up taking a gap semester and then eventually transferring to Webster University on uh, a chess scholarship. So I kind of got to uh, a, a sense of both worlds between a more serious like academic school and a chess school where met a lot of cool people and Webster was under the um, under the spice program with mm -hmm. Susan Polgar still so. is I think yeah 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 is that when you decided that you wanted to stay in the chess world full-time when you were at Webster uh, yeah so to be honest like I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life even like well through college it wasn't until maybe like my junior or senior year at Webster that um, I mean, I was pursuing a, a different major, interactive digital media, which kind of encompassed like web design, photography, graphic design, video production. So it was more aligned with my interests. 
but I didn't know if I wanted to like have chess as my profession or just get like a normal nine to five job or do freelance. And like, even after graduating, like I didn't know what I wanted to do But that do was the most, that, that's the most attractive thing about chess, being a chess professional, just the flexibility mm -hmm. of it all. Yeah. You don't have keeping to the go options open. to a nine five, keeping the options open. I remember you also as a big chess photographer, like yeah. you were doing a lot of traveling based on that. So you found a lot of paths to pursue chess as a chess professional, not only by playing, but also through photography, through streaming and everything of that nature. Yeah, I think my mindset was just to learn, like keep learning like new skills and, and keep kind of pursuing what I was interested in. And even if I didn't know what I wanted to do long term, I'd have a lot of just opportunities and options open. And I decided that after graduating, it was May 2017, uh, I just decided to take a gap year and, and travel and play in tournaments. And um, I was coaching a lot of the time. So that was enough to support myself and support my travels. And um, yeah, then a few months after graduating, I started streaming on Twitch and making YouTube content. And of course, that snowballed over time. And um, yeah, I'm like super grateful to have found kind of my niche and something that I enjoy doing. Tell us about that gap year, because this is one thing I guess I myself struggled as a chess professional after graduating, um, pretty much making ends meet. How are you? How are you doing that? And did you feel any sort of anxiety about it at all? Yeah, I guess there is some like financial pressure. Um, but the thing about coaching chess online, if you have enough students, I, I was making more than I would have if I just got like an entry level like job entry level, some, yeah. like design firm. Um, so I already had like enough coming in and enough flexibility to kind of keep learning and, and experimenting with different projects. But at the same time, students come and go, right? That's true. A lot of them just come in for a couple of lessons and then they get bored and then they leave. Then you have to resupply uh, the same number of uh, students if you want to continue maintaining your financial yeah. status, I guess. At that point, uh, just because I had more time open up given I wasn't a student, um, there, there was a lot of demand for lessons. Mm. Um, like I already had like maybe a dozen or two students as giving like weekly or um, like twice a month lessons. And um, pretty early in the gap year, I had to stop taking new students because there was so much demand. And I put a wait list on my site thinking that, uh, okay, if I can't give lessons to you now, maybe I can give lessons to you in the future. But that wait list, it got like maybe a few hundred signups over the course of a few months. Oh, wow. And um, I had to like direct potential students to just other coaches. Um, so I already had kind of a, I guess a recognizable brand online, maybe not so much from my own like Twitch and YouTube channels at that point, um, but through the St. Louis Chess Club. Uh, Cause like mid 2017, I did the like, residency at the club, uh, like the GM in residence, even though I was, I was and still am and I am. Um, some of those lectures were put on YouTube and a few of those like got over a million views and that led to a lot of just demand for private coaching. So super grateful for that, to just kind of have the, have the option to pursue coaching if I wanted, but that was also kind of a kickstart to me doing my own Twitch and YouTube channels. So when you were at Webster, who were the chess players that you were friends with or that you liked to hang out with? Yeah, um, I mean, I was like top 
maybe within the top 10, maybe like 10th rated overall. Uh, but there was Laquan Liam, Ray Robson, Ilya Nizhnik. That's an intimidating um, lineup. Right Bailey, Alexander Shimanov. I mean, it goes on and on. Fidel Corrales, Manuel Hoyos. I think at some uh, point they only had GMs, right? Yeah, like I was bored four on their C team at oh, Pan Ams, wow. which was a completely different experience playing for Illinois, where I was bored one on A team. <laughs> um, so it was very humbling and... Uh, I learned a ton from just studying with those players and we had like these intensive training sessions. So, uh, yeah, it was a very interesting experience. Since you're on the pod right now, I'm going to try to extract some uh, enemy information. Sure. Because yeah. uh, obviously I teach at Mizu. So mm -hmm. I, I want to know what did you find the best tool to uh, train at Webster? What was the best tool? Something that you didn't know that top level players like Grandmasters 26, 26, 50. You mentioned also Lequang Liam, who was close to 2700 at that point, and world-class trainer like Susan Polgar. What was the main tool that they were using? Yeah, first of all, I don't think I have any secrets to hide. Like there is no like secret training formula or anything. Um, I think it was a mix of things. One thing that really helped is we had our own chess office that everyone had access to 24 seven. So at any point, there'd usually be someone studying in the room. So you're like always surrounded by chess. We had um, like kind of a computer lab of, of computers stocked up with uh, chess base and all the modern games and um, a lot of like uh, just software and online resources. And we had an extensive chess library too. So kind of having the environment for self-study was amazing. And then in terms of like the structured chess practices, we'd usually meet a few times a month, um, probably more so before big tournaments. And um, there'd be some structured routine of like solving very difficult exercises. And the whole team was given like the same maybe eight or 16 exercises mm -hmm. that the top level GMs would maybe solve like 80% of. And for me, I would only solve like three or four. So like, they were very difficult training material, but, um, it, uh, it was nice. It's like lifting heavy weights. It's, it's what makes you stronger. Um, and then we would play out a lot of, uh, like thematic positions or opening positions. And I think that helped a lot, like not necessarily playing just normal training games, but playing out positions that test your defending capabilities or attacking abilities or what to do when things are super chaotic. Um, that was there also uh, a lot of competitiveness nice. like playing blitz or or in solving was there were a lot of the players oh trying yeah to compete with one another and trying to like yeah there were incentives to like whoever would solve the social most puzzles incentives and, or <laughs> uh yeah, it was a mix of things but uh, we were given homework too so whoever like came back with the most problems solved every week would there was some point system and at the end we'd get gift cards to restaurants or um or whatever so that's uh, one yeah. thing I haven't implemented. I okay. gotta get the gift cards. Yes, <laughs> I have to buy. I don't gift think cards. I ever like actually got a gift card, but uh, yeah, I mean, like everyone is naturally competitive on the team, and um, there there'd always be like what's going on. What yeah. what if somebody decides to cheat? Hmm? What if somebody decides to cheat? Oh, just like, like use the engine to do the puzzles. There is and then some come and one hundred percent, one hundred percent every single week, and then uh, you get gift cards. Yeah, what was that? I think someone someone leaves the program. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, there's always going to be drama behind the scenes, but uh, 
I think most people were pretty honest on, on the team. And um, I'm trying to think back, like, usually it was a matter of actually getting people to like, do the exercises on their own, because you had to have to balance like schoolwork and all the other things in life. And I will say I was very bad at like actually doing the homework because it, it just takes and it takes a few hours of like very intensive focus. And I, I was at that point, I was teaching a lot and doing a lot of like freelance work and also trying to get my coursework done. So was, was this homework balance. mandatory? Were you expected to complete it or was just optional? I think it was more expected for the top players on our team. For myself, I think it was somewhat optional, but like every player had their own goals too. Because for me, I knew that I wasn't going to be a professional player. Of course, I want to improve on my game. I was working hard before tournaments, but um, yeah, in like in a time where I don't have anything going on or any tournaments going on for a few months, and maybe I wasn't taking chess as seriously as I would. I noticed that with uh, like solving puzzles that it never really follows a pattern that the best player is necessarily the best problem solver. That's true. Because I also like, I noticed this personally, but also I spoke to a lot of trainers that I worked with. And I also saw this from, Magnus said this recently. Mm -hmm. he, he said, I've never been that good at solving puzzles. And maybe that's a motivation thing. But I, I, I worked with Mickey Adams once and he refused to solve them. That, you reminded me of that when you said uh, that like a lot of players didn't like complete the homework. He just refused. Straight, I was like, I will not solve any studies, and uh, and that was kind of funny, but but yeah. why 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 did he refuse them? I think it's just like he didn't want to put the mental effort into doing it. Like, mm. It's a lot different like, too than like in a chess game. You're not told when you have like a a winning combination or anything, and puzzles. Maybe in some sense, it's not the most authentic training experience. Where it's not as like, practical. You, yeah, yeah. Like, I feel it helps a lot for. now. I'm thinking that maybe Mickey was not seeing himself as that much of a competitive player, more like he was looking to basically help you in your preparation. Maybe yeah. he didn't feel like that's his role within the team. Or yeah, I mean, when you've played like top chess for thirty years, probably at some point you're like, okay, I've, I've done, I've done all of that. I did that when I was ten years old and twenty years old, <laughs> and now that I'm fifty, I'm I'm done with that. I'm never doing it again. That's basically our experience. I think it was in Miami and we were trying to like feed you some really difficult endgame. Like, no. <laughs> and you were just like, no, I'm, I'm not doing this. I used to do that when I was 10 years of age and I'm not doing this anymore. But some players, like they love puzzle solving. I was at a cafe the other day with a few players and Maurice walks in and he was telling the story about how he um, has this like very difficult problem that he gave to some top players. Mm -hmm that took like hours, if not days to solve. And he showed us like a screenshot of the position on his phone and uh, Ray Robson was with us. And for like the next maybe 15 to 20 minutes, Ray was just like, like we were still having some conversation, talking about the vent and everything. Um, but Ray was like clearly like trying to think of the solution to the puzzle. And then 20 minutes later, like Ray like rattles off this line um that uh was like was it on involving the right track. A king's side attack and there was like an h file that was that was opening up and white also had like some slightly weak i, I have the position somewhere okay. it starts with queen e1 yeah that, that's a position yeah, okay so there's like a period where maurice was sending me every single because he uh, composes right composes studies and he was sending me like every position that he composed or that he was interested in uh -huh. and i remember he was so excited about this one and it is like a super interesting position and as i was like like so 
solving it, he was coming up with some new details about um, like how to make it a bit more beautiful or like finesse it somewhat. Uh, but yeah, it, you you know Ray well, right? He he oh, yeah, he's extremely good at um, like solving like he's the he was a puzzle rush champion, puzzle for, battle world champion. Yeah, yeah, two or three years in a row. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I'm not surprised when you, when you mentioned Ray, cause I, I know that he's like super good at that stuff. Yeah. Like I've, I have, like, I hang out with him. I have meals with him on a regular basis. And like, if you give him a, a puzzle during a meal, like he'll, that's what's going to be on his mind. And, um, yeah, he's like, he's super, super talented when it comes to solving. And like, he, he was probably the one at Webster that like was the best in terms of just solving all the homework and puzzles that we were given. I feel bad about uh, actually losing Ray because we almost got him mm. at UD Dallas. Oh, wow. He came to play a tournament. I remember it was the only uh, game that I actually beat him. It was this invitational organized by UD Dallas. I played with him for the first time with the white pieces. Um, I think we had a pretty complex middle game battle and then I was worse, but then somehow he made a mistake and I ended up uh, winning. That was my only victory against him and we played like eight times. After that, he just mm -hmm. killed me every single wow. uh, game that we played. But I remember that we were having our, high, uh, our hopes high that he's going to join the program. Uh, but then one week later, we found out that he actually followed Susan at, I think it was, was it Webster or Texas Tech at that I think point? at the time it was still probably Texas Tech. It might have been Texas Tech and then they went to, uh, to, to, to Webster. But yeah, he was uh, definitely a big miss. And speaking of Ray also, and of this type of players that get obsessed with uh, whatever chess games or chess problems you show them and they just obsess over trying to find the, the solution. Mm -hmm. I was never that way. You show me a position, I'm going to try to solve it for a little bit. And if we go on to have lunch, I'm not going to be thinking about that. Um, how would you guys assess, uh, I guess, yourselves and your personality? Do you obsess over that? Uh, it depends. I can, but it really depends on my mood. Mm. But sometimes I, I will obsess over a position. Um, more so if it's like it occurs in my games and I'm like trying to figure it out. If it's a study, like I'm... I don't, I see the beauty in studies, but not the same way that like some players like are just so obsessed with like beauty in studies, right? And they end up com getting into compositions like Jan Timon is, is a good example, right? He was like, you know, one of the best players in the world of his time, multiple time candidate, but, but also he was really a really good, is a really good composer of, of chess studies. Um, so I think that's, that's like a different quality than just chess playing you also need to have like the passion for that absolutely yeah i feel excluded because maurice never sent me any studies because he knows you wouldn't solve them <laughs> maybe that's why maurice if you are listening to this please send me some studies i know alejandro is always bragging about receiving a lot of studies um uh, from maurice i feel excluded i'm sorry about how that. about yourself did he send you any studies eric no, no, the first study I, I saw from his was this other day at uh, cafe. So, um, but I like, I, I really need to be in the mindset to like work on a, a, a position. It's not something like if I'm at a casual meal, I'm, I'm going to like devote my heart into. But I was recently in uh, Abu Dhabi for this big master's tournament. And I had a few meals with Joe Bava mm -hmm. and um, him and Ray were uh, were at our table and they were like really digging into this. Uh, there's this chess based India video where they're showing like these really beautiful studies. Um, and Joe Bava was like all about it, like um, 
he like he's so so passionate about chess and like once he found the solution he wanted to like show everyone at our he's table obsessed. And, yep. yeah um but it's a quality that i really admire because it just goes to show how much like intensity and passion you can have for the game so did he make you any deals or like try to make you any deals deals whenever i like meet badur uh -huh. Kyobaba, he uh he always has some sort of deal that he wants to make. Ooh. And the last one was, if you win this tournament, you will dye your hair the same color that my hair is. And at the time, it was pink. That sounds amazing. And did you take him up on that? I didn't take him up, but uh, but Maxime did. Uh -huh. So if you saw Maxime with pink hair at some point... That, that's okay. I saw the picture. I don't know. Oh, the that was it there from uh, Jababa. He lost. Yeah. yeah, he made some sort of deal with Maxime, a similar one. I think it was when he won the World Blitz Championship. Uh -huh. He was like, if you win the World Blitz Championship... <laughs> dye your hair pink and he did and and Maxime upheld his his end of the bargain but he he approached me in a restroom during one of the games and I was like I, I can't think about this right now it's too <laughs> crucial of a decision you know so I just ended up not um not taking the deal mm -hmm. otherwise deal? well it was like if you qualify for the candidates from the grand swiss then and I ended up qualifying so I would have had pink hair <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Yeah, I remember um, another um, player of that personality is uh, Timur Garev, very similar to Jobaba. And I remember a similar story about him um, failing his classes in college and basically cutting deals with uh, his professors um, that if he beats them in poker, then they would pass him in, uh, in school. I don't know if they ever took those type of deals, obviously. It would be a little bit unethical. Unethical, to, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You're, you're losing poker against your student, <laughs> then you have to pass him. Quite interesting. So, um, college. Tell us about the college a little bit, Eric. Yeah, um, I mean, for the final, I'll be honest, for the final semester of college, you were tuned out. I huh? tuned out, but I, I was still learning a lot just through watching like just YouTube videos about things I was interested in between like photography, design, marketing. I went through the whole phase of like binge watching Gary Vaynerchuk, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. who was like a big kind of role model for me at the time. Um, was watching a lot on like social media and I kind of had this inkling to start my own online brand in some way, um, like combining it with like web development. And I went through a phase of like buying website domains. So I had bought fmrosen.com and then I became an IM, so I mm -hmm. bought imrosen.com. Then I also bought gmrosen.com just in case. Um, and like a bunch of other like kind of small chess projects and freelance projects. Um, so I probably learned more from like outside the classroom yeah. than like during class. Uh, Was this like a strategy to just basically up your brand and put it out there? Or was that just a passion to try to learn new things and being attracted to just that uh, process of learning new things, I guess? Yeah, it was a mix of things. I mean, I think I realized at some point that especially with my degree, it doesn't really matter if you actually graduate. It's all about your skill set and your portfolio and like what your knowledge is so and you weren't thinking of getting a nine to five job at that point in graphic design or anything of that nature you were just thinking about being a gap year and playing chess right that originally that was basically the decision i had made um i had one nine to five job as like an internship in uh in 2014 at booz allen hamilton yes which is like a very like 
professional government job um, that Booz Allen Hamilton actually sponsored the Final Four of College Chess. So they recruited a few chess players for this internship. I think that was my final um, final four. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, and it made me realize that I didn't quite want to do the nine to five, like wearing a suit every day and working like a small cubicle office. Um, I felt like there is more like interesting, interesting things to do as a career. Um, so yeah, it was mainly about keeping my options open. Was that just because of your creative personality, would you say? Would you attribute it to that? Yeah, part of that, but also like because I didn't know what I wanted to do, I just wanted to learn as much as I could. And um, I mean, just consuming like podcasts and audiobooks. And um, yeah, like I, I think there is one audiobook by Gary Vaynerchuk uh, called Crushing It, mm -hmm. where he just highlights all the, these um, kind of solo entrepreneurs like starting kind of their own business probably listening through social media. One. Yeah, there's another one, um, Chris Gillibo, uh, who, like, he had a podcast called Side Hustle School. And every day it would be a five or 10 minute episode of someone, like, just making, uh, like, like, doing the side hustle and making a few extra thousand dollars a month. And, like, all, the, all these crazy ideas. I think he featured probably a few, like, chess players on it. Um, but it just gave, gave some inspiration of what's possible. In I think it age. was like 2017, 2018, when I was dabbling into streaming as well. And mm -hmm. you were starting about that time also. Like we were kind of uh, not necessarily competing with each other in terms of who has more <laughs> sure. followers, because we both had like 800 and we were trying to get it to 1,000. Uh -huh. When was that pivotal moment when you felt that streaming and YouTube and everything, social media, uh, you will be able to transfer that into an actual profession. I think it was very gradual. Um, at in the beginning, I probably spent hundreds of hours basically working for free, yeah. uh, like streaming to very few people. And um, if you calculated my hourly rate wage, it would probably be way less than minimum wage. <laughs> uh, but I learned a lot through doing that. I, I think one of the biggest skills I learned was actually like speaking in front of a camera in front of an audience and that was one of the big things that held me back at first was just comfort level speaking in front of people even if they're virtual online because um, I, I had the passion for teaching and kind of explaining uh explaining chess and sharing my passion with chess but uh i also had some stage fright and some insecurities and just being able to start and get the experience um, I think really helped and yeah, it was kind of gradual, um, growth of, of the channel, like on both Twitch and YouTube. Um, I think, uh, a big thing that helped at some point was I defeated Magnus Carlsen unknowingly in this like Lee chess title arena. It was the first time we ever played and he was playing anonymously. I found out after the fact it was him that I had beaten. What was, what was his, uh, handle? It was man with a van. Man with the van. He I was mean, playing from a van. Like he apparently was playing on mobile, oh. but uh, he like he won the tournament and mm -hmm. uh, his, our game was one of his three losses. And a few months later, the the stream of um, or the video of our game that I streamed was on the front page of Reddit, and uh, it was like r slash videos or something. And I got maybe uh, half a million views in, in a single day, and it kind of. Uh, and there's a huge spike in, in the um, viewership and also like ad revenue on YouTube. And 
I think that was kind of an inflection point where I realized that uh, you can actually it, make it's money. It's possible to go viral, and it's possible to yeah have some nice uh, nice income come from like YouTube and uh, streaming, and that drove a lot of new members to to watching live on Twitch as well. Do you think there's like a pattern to why chess streamers either get big or or don't achieve as much success? Because we like we know the most popular and successful chess streamers. Do you think that's as due to any like specific reasons that and how they present their material or how much work they do or or that they just you know got viral at the right moment or got that early exposure at the right moment yeah there there i think is some luck component but um I mean, when you're putting so much content out there and, and really being consistent and doing like daily grinds i think um at some point, as, as long as you keep kind of refining the content and make it as good as possible, um, at some point, if you do go viral, what's most important is that you have a backlog of content for new viewers to kind of go down the funnel and, and see what else you have to offer. And I think I was lucky also with the timing that I had done hundreds of streams before I had actually like defeated Carlson. So um, it was good timing on my, my part. but. Of course, the landscape is always changing, and these days there's so much chess content out there. Like now, if you check on Twitch at any moment, there's dozens, if not like over a hundred different chess streamers streaming chess. So these days, I think you have to try and find ways to make your content unique, but also try and provide value in a way that maybe other content creators aren't doing. How do you do that? What's your process? Um, refining process. Yeah, for me in the beginning, it was just, it was a trying to make every stream or every video a little bit better than the last. Um, and the biggest challenge for me was just starting um, because I wanted to start like in 2015, uh, but I was just scared and overwhelmed of like the technical setup and speaking in front of people. Maybe I did a, like a few videos in 2015 if you go way back on my YouTube channel, but um a big part is just consistency. And then what what I did, I think helped me a lot was I, I edited all my videos from Twitch to put on YouTube. So I was always watching my content back, which I know is uncomfortable for some people to like watch yourself speak and maybe cringe at moments where you didn't say things as clearly or, or choked on some words. But that helped me kind of reflect on what I could do better, how I can present information better. And um, over time, that made me more confident. Um, and I like, I would keep a list of like, kind of cool content ideas or ways to brainstorm like new things that maybe people haven't tried yet, or, or ways to keep things fresh, not only for the audience but also for myself. Um, that I still kind of go back to if, if I feel like I'm in a rut. I'll just try new things on stream or, or try new kind of YouTube. Do you find concepts. that overwhelming at times from a psychological perspective? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, there's definitely a factor of burnout where if I if I'm grinding too much, like even maybe a couple of days ago, I had streamed almost every day a week prior, and uh, there there can definitely be some like fatigue or exhaustion where I need to take a few days off. Um, just to kind of recuperate and rejuvenate. And um, yeah, it's it's probably still one of the biggest challenges is keeping a healthy balance between like, creating content, but also sleeping well, eating well, getting exercise, because 
it's it's hard being your own boss where you're completely in charge of your own schedule and you it's really up to myself to determine my own routines that's what i felt was the most difficult part for me at least when i was uh, streaming when i was doing a lot of twitch just for the simple fact that yes your routine in general takes a hit your sleeping mm -hmm. schedule definitely takes a hit uh workout schedule is a big one and for me working out is one of uh the few ways I try to keep myself grounded. Um, also, then there, there's the traveling. Whenever you're going for a tournament and you don't stream, because it's so difficult to stream when you're playing a tournament or when you're doing commentary for six hours, and then you still have to stream to maintain that consistency, because that's a big one. Um, I, I keep falling through, uh, uh, through those passages, right, where I go, one week I stream or maybe two weeks I stream, I build up an audience and then I have to go do commentary for two weeks and then I completely fall off the wagon. Um, that's because that's a big humans are not very good without structure yeah, in general. That's true. Yeah, like We're just not built to not have structure in our lives. I mean, like not, not just uh, as an individual thing, but people in general just need structure. So it's difficult to, uh, to adjust to that where things are changing constantly and you can't really get into a routine when you're pulled from so many angles, did you feel at any time that you're being pulled? Uh, because you're wearing a lot of hats. Once again, you're a photographer, oh, sure. you, you, you like to travel, you like to play occasionally. Did you feel like um, at any point it becomes extremely difficult to maintain that balance? And, and how do you address that? Yeah, uh, like all the, it's a constant challenge because it's so easy to be spread thin. Yeah, just with all the hats I wear, and there's definitely pros and cons. Like on one hand, because I'm doing all these things bet between streaming, YouTube, all like the sponsorship integrations, and then some traveling coming up, um, it's a lot to balance. But uh, it also keep keeps things fun for myself too and uh, keeps things fresh and avoids kind of the redundancy. Um, so I'm trying to say no more to just opportunities because I, I get dozens of messages per day of, of people asking for various things and there's only so much I can do. Um, I'm trying to outsource more work now too. Um, I've actually hired uh, my mom as uh, kind of an assistant for me to to manage emails and handle a lot on the back end with bookkeeping and taxes and random paperwork. And it's been great to kind of have um, kind of a, a stress relief uh, or, or less less things to worry about. Um, I also have uh, Jonathan Trance uh, goes by Shout Vampire Chicken Jonathan, on yeah. Twitch, uh, who does Vampire a lot of editing chicken. work. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so he handles like my whole clip channel on YouTube. And uh, yeah, I'm realizing that outsourcing work is uh, is a very useful thing and um, kind of keeping that life work balance. Are, are most of your viewers or followers, are they from the you know early days of you streaming or or are they more like new new uh, you know followers of chess from, let's say the boom in 2020 when there was the the Netflix special and and obviously the pandemic attributed to many, a lot of people getting into chess are, are most of your followers from before that time or, or are they more from after that? Yeah, I will say like the bulk of, so I have like maybe just under 600,000 subscribers on YouTube. The bulk of those subscribers subscribed in the like 2020, mm. like Queen's Gambit chess boom. Um, and there's definitely been some drop off with growth 
that there was a point where I was getting like one to 2,000 new subscribers on YouTube a day. That's dropped off to maybe one or 200 new subscribers a day, which I'm, I'm okay with. I try not to get too attached to the, the numbers. Um, but there's definitely like the kind of the core audience of the people that keep coming back. And um, yeah, I think with at least people that watch on Twitch, there's definitely some, so, like you can see the subscriber number of like how many months viewers have been subscribed for. So there, there's some that have started watching from the beginning when I started streaming like over four years. And then there's others that are like just tuning in, like just discovered my channel through um, maybe a, a video on YouTube that kind of hit a, a wider audience. So it's um, it's kind of a wide range of viewers and it's also a kind of range of demographics. Like there's very young viewers who watch my channel, who um, like at the Sinkfield Cup opening ceremony, there's so many kids coming up asking for pictures or autographs. And uh, But there's also a lot of like older viewers too, like in their 60s or 70s that will send me messages about how it's kind of their, their main entertainment these days. So it's, um, it's nice to reach a very diverse audience. Was that a motivating factor for you as well? Just being uh, not necessarily in the spotlight, but feeling the support of, you know, random chess fans out there. Oh, yeah, it's um, I mean, it's very eye opening, too, when like for especially like during pandemic, I'm like, I'm just inside most of the time talking in front of my computer to this virtual audience and then going to an in-person event and kind of feeling like a celebrity where like I went to Vegas recently for this national open uh, Vegas chess festival and like I couldn't walk through the playing hall without getting stopped and people lining up for photos and um, yeah it's like super flattering and it's uh, getting recognized more in public too like even outside of St. Louis like mm -hmm. when traveling through the airport um, like it usually happens a handful of times every month Oh, if it happens to you too, Fabio. Rarely, but but sometimes, yeah. yeah, sometimes. More often recently, I noticed that chess has uh -huh. has def definitely gotten a popularity boost. Where I, where this was like super rare ten years ago, that mm -hmm. just wouldn't get noticed anywhere except like, you know, once every two years. And now now it's a bit more common. I mean, uh -huh. we literally you sign autographs this morning, in the coffee shop. Yeah, but but like we're we're in St. Louis, so especially yeah. in St. Louis, yeah, yeah. Saint especially Louis. during a tournament, yeah. yeah. If you're within a few blocks of the club, it's bound to happen. But yeah, now it's a lot more common that there's like just people coming up on, on the street every once in a while. You mentioned that you played in Abu Dhabi. Are you going, do you have any other over-the-board tournaments lined up or, or content that you'll incorporate into like over-the-board tournaments? Yeah, um, there's a lot of potential trips on my kind of upcoming timeline. Um in terms of OTB, I don't know when my next event will be, but I, I really want to go to the World Rapid Blitz, mm. which I know it's like it's rumored to be in some locations. I don't think anything official has been announced yet. I heard Abu Dhabi as well. I've, I've heard that too, yeah, actually. That's the yeah. only location I've heard, so, but I, I guess they might have some other options lined up. Yeah, I, I think they um, they usually don't announce it until yeah. later. So um, it would be really cool to play the World Rapid Blitz uh, just for a content opportunity. What's the qualification process for that? I, I think there's some rating cutoff and like my all my like Rapid Blitz ratings are below 2400. So I might have to send like a, a nice email to one of the top FIDE people asking for a wild card. But um, there's been I mean, I've played tournaments this year where I'll email the organizers and say that I'm 
I'm interested in playing their event and I'd be happy to promote it on my, my channels. And they're usually more than willing to offer like nice conditions. Um, and recently I played Abu Dhabi before that I played Reykjavik open earlier this year, it was Gibraltar, this battle of the sexes event. Mm -hmm. So I'm definitely trying to find opportunities to play just to, um, just to be able to travel and, and see people in real life. And, um, I might play or I might, um, visit the global chess championship in Toronto, Toronto. Yeah. Toronto yeah. Uh, as a photographer actually is that the final eight that qualified to the or is that just the last the final two that qualified for that it's either top four or top eight i think okay. it's top eight actually okay because there's semi-finals or there's quarterfinals semis and then finals i should know this but uh, are you playing <laughs> i'm playing the like the online qualification gotcha today, so you don't I... automatically get a spot in like the top eight or no whatever. no it's i think it's like a bracket of 64 okay right now and it's so ridiculously strong it's like i mean i, I saw thought they like, posted the lineup like, yeah on the gauntlet like, that i'll have to go through to yeah. to get to whatever like to, to get to toronto is just totally insane but i love the concept of like having the, the online qualifiers like similar to what they did a few years ago with pro chess league of having the live finals in person where it's just such an amazing event for I think players and spectators, and it seems. Were you there in San Francisco? It was in San Francisco yeah. a couple of years ago. Twenty nineteen, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I went there as kind of photographer and like kind of journalist, and uh, just the setup was amazing. And I'm sure they're gonna. They did that recently too in Miami. I I, I quite yeah. like that uh, yeah. that format where you have, I mean, it seems a bit unintuitive to have like chess played. Vir online but not virtually sure but i i think it's a nice format because you the players wear headphones and like using the noise canceling yeah. headphones and spectators can just enjoy and talk and not have to like be in church silence like like they do during normal tournaments right exactly like they're in the same room as a commentary but with the headphones they can't yeah. hear anything and i think you were the only one pretty much at least out of this group that experienced that as a player in 2019 mm -hmm. at the Pro League Finals. Yeah. Uh, did you hear anything? Did you hear the claps? Because I remember people were like drinking, having a lot of fun, yeah, yeah. I, screaming I think, occasionally. I think it was very loud, but not for mm. us. You I didn't really, hear anything, huh? I didn't notice it so much. Uh, were you listening like, to music? You just hear like a low murmur of mm. whatever. Uh, and I know that they could hear the commentary too. Uh, I think Danny and, and Robert were doing that. Yeah. Or maybe it was... No, no, it was Danny, Robert, I think it was Anna. Alexandra was there and Anna I don't know, was, but yeah. I think they were like doing more like on the spot reporting. But I, I, that was a great event. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was also fun for the spectators. Um, and yeah, we didn't like hear any any of the uh, commentary. You, you had to listen to like music or white noise, right? I don't remember the options. I know music was definitely an option. I don't know okay. if there were like none. Because... So there's this thing with Magnus. I don't know if you if you saw it, where he was like cracking up during one of his matches in Miami. Oh no! Like every game, he was just laughing. Everyone's like, "What the? What is he laughing about?" And it turned out he was just like listening to a like a Norwegian uh, comedy duo or something like that. Listening and, to comedy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know how oh. you can play chess while listening to comedy. This yeah. is like beyond me. Uh -huh. um, but I, yeah, I thought I figured it had to be something he's listening to because. Uh -huh. It wasn't like a one-time thing, like he's remembering something funny, but it was just like constantly laughing. <laughs> and everyone was like, what is he, what is he doing? <laughs> That's so strange to listen to during a chess game. Like, yeah. yeah. If you want to stay focused, man. I literally cannot do basic tasks. I cannot answer emails while listening to music. 
I cannot in- imagine playing chess at the high level and listening to like funny podcasts. Well, there's a genre of like focus music that's like instrumental Study, that tries yeah. to get you in the zone. Yeah. I wonder if chess, like rapid chess, can in some ways also be so like automatic, like so intuitive that you don't even have to put much effort in. Interesting. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I usually find that if I'm like too relaxed, even during like rapid blitz games, that my play suffers a lot. But maybe for some people, it's like you know they can, they can pretty much shut shut off their their brain and just mm-hmm. go on pure intuition. Maybe Magnus is, is one of those players. But yeah, I was also surprised that he was able to focus or to perform well. You know, I mean, he beat Frugia in a match, so mm-hmm. it's not like that happens uh, very easily. Um, yeah, that was surprising. What's your uh, favorite role to travel tournaments uh, as player, commentator? Photographer or journalist? Ooh, that's a tough question because I, I really like the variety. If I do too much of one thing, it can get kind of redundant. Um, it was so cool going to the World Cup in Sochi and being a photographer for the first week. And then that was a month long event. It was a month long event. And then, like, as the tournament started uh, stretching on and more and more players started getting eliminated. It got very redundant and, and more lonely too, as more players just flew back home. Um, but the first week was amazing to capture like so many different players from all over and, and the emotions of elimination as well. Right. Yeah. And recently, I mean, the last, or the three tournaments I played this year, I really, really enjoyed, um, like conditions were top notch at all of them. Uh, even the games that I just got crushed, I was really having fun and like just learning a lot from. And um, recently in Abu Dhabi, like after right after every game I played, I went straight to my hotel room and recapped the game for YouTube in like 15, 20 minute videos. And those were those made for like very fun content and the games were fresh in my mind. And um, it was some therapy too to like even after a tough loss to kind of go back and see what could have been improved and, and just share like the story behind my opening preparation or, or share key moments. Uh, it was very enjoyable for me. That's very interesting that you say that, that even after losses, you found a way to enjoy that and give it to the world, give it back to the world. Because for example, guys like uh, Magnus, I would assume maybe you're like that as well. After a, a loss is a loss. Yeah, it's, it's really painful, devastating, and you don't feel like uh, doing anything after that. Also, you're not thinking about actually enjoying uh, that loss. A lot of top players don't even analyze their games after uh, after they lose. And it's definitely painful. That's one thing I struggle with as well. Loss is a big one. And um, I... I I don't know. I feel like if I go with the mindset that I can enjoy a loss, I'm not going to be as competitive. Mm -hmm. Do you struggle with that at all? Yeah, for me, I've kind of I've shifted my mindset where years ago, yeah, like playing chess, it was mainly about winning and trying to competitiveness. Right. Yeah. These days, I think it's more about learning, but also being able to kind of share the experience or the story with an audience that can also benefit from from these games. Um, And like even... I got crushed really badly by Abimanyu mm-hmm. in uh, in Reykjavik. Like I, I was losing a queen after twelve moves, uh, as he hit me with some like annoying opening preparation. And like before the game, I I looked up his repertoire and I saw he's only playing d4 and he's following exactly Sam Shanklin's chessable course mm-hmm. in d4. Mm-hmm. 
So 20 minutes before the game, I bought Shanklin's chessboard course. I looked at exactly the line that Abhimanyu plays, some like um, sideline with a6 early. And I prepared like 20, 25 moves deep. And then he comes to the game and plays e4 on move one. And all my preparation is in shambles. And that was a day with two games a day where like the first round of that day, I played for four, five hours. I was so tired. And okay, we played into some like Sicilian where he... He was actually following uh, Wesley So's chessboard course. <laughs> I realized during the game that I, I just wasn't prepared for. Um, and my queen got trapped in some funny way. Like I overlooked some uh, some cool tactic. And like even though I, I lost pretty badly, it was a story to tell. And like just to have that experience playing one of the top young talents who in a few years could very well be like top um, top in the world. Um, it was a great experience. To... Isn't it crazy that we're living in a world right now of chess when you can basically follow the preparation, the best preparation, the best efforts of the best players in the world and just with a click of a mouse with a couple of hundred dollars or whatever it is at that moment, you can basically gather and, and, and have the knowledge of the best chess players at your fingertips. It's, Definitely, yeah. It, it's, it's just incredible. Well, you me. can have the knowledge that they're willing to give you. <laughs> Let's say do you're, you think they you're probably not going to get. Do you think they hold back at all? Where, I mean, where like for example, let's say I'll give you an example. Anish's uh, Nidor repertoire. I mean, he'll tell you all the things that someone can find by doing the road work themselves, but like the creative stuff, no, no, I, I don't think that you can get that. But again, that's like that's that's a that's a small part of it. I mean, you don't you don't need that level of preparation to be super successful in openings, right? If you have Wesley's course, Sam's course, Anish's course, that's that's like pretty much the best level of preparation mm -hmm. that you can have mm -hmm. until like you have those things where um, like calculated bluffs and openings or semi bluffs, things like that, which are are a little bit different that's like trying to trying to one-up you know the the next best guy um but and this yeah. is a matter of like days yeah, yeah somebody plays something one day and then you have to one-up that the next day right because information travels so fast nowadays and yeah. games are happening every single day yeah it's also a very uh personal thing sometimes um it's like let's say wesley is uh is playing Levon. And they know each other so well because they play like you know a hundred games, and and it's not just about what the best move is, but about how he feels he can then try to outplay his opponent. Uh, which again, that that's not exclusive to Wesley and Levon. That could be also at the fourteen hundred level or the two thousand level. But yeah, that that component is uh, is also there when you're very familiar with someone. So, but yeah, I mean. Not to disparage any of the courses, like they're they're definitely great for uh, for every level, but uh, they don't have all the secrets included for sure. That's interesting. I bought the Zwiddler's Grunfeld course. Zwiddler was actually talking about this on the broadcast a few days ago. That there's certain lines in that course that he, like he held back as like kind of backup options. That if someone's gonna like get his course mm. and prepare for him, he has some alternatives to play that aren't mentioned in the course but are still like playable. But so. that's one of the things very specific with the Grunfeld. There mm -hmm. are so many ways in which you can play as black and probably with perfect knowledge, you're going to be able to equalize. Well, that's every opening. That's true. Also, like, yeah. Except the Stafford Gambit. 
probably. Yeah, every big Gambit. opening. <laughs> <laughs> the Stafford Gambit is big. It's a big opening. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things of modern chess. Yeah, one of like I spoke to players who were at their peak in let's say the '90s, and they said they were in like a panic. Like, what do you do against e4 first move? Mm. Like, there's no way to equalize. <laughs> and now we have like every opening equalized. Every opening is good. Uh, we realize the wealth of like possibility is is dramatically higher than than we realized before. Just chess is so rich that you can you can approach it in, in more ways than we thought. Is it generally more difficult to get an advantage with a white compared to trying to equalize with black? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a real struggle, and the only real issue with black is that. Like let's say you any player who's like who really takes their opening seriously these days will have a really foolproof repertoire with with black, uh, but you can't so often remember everything. So and you you still have some things like you equalize, but you don't know the position so perfectly. So you you still have uh, room to out prepare or out uh, outplay your opponent in certain positions. But actually getting an advantage that happens so rarely, like. I, I don't even remember, you know. I, like, we were preparing for linear, right, in this tournament? Mm-hmm. And um, all we were trying to do was just, like, get something that is a bit unfamiliar and a bit tricky. Every line that we looked at was objectively equal. Mm-hmm. Every single possibility he had. There, were, there weren't even, like, ways he could get worse. It was mm-hmm. just, like, maybe at some point we'll get a game and then eventually it'll be difficult to play for him and I know it a bit better than him. But that's... That's the extent of your optimism with white these days. There's no like getting a winning or even much better position. It's just just unrealistic to uh, to think that way. I loved your game against him at the American Cup. I forget the opening, but it was some like opening surprise where engine initially gives like minus point five for you, but it's like so tricky and it seemed like you beat him pretty convincingly. Yeah, this was this was a symmetrical English uh, uh-huh. with an early d four. And yeah, I, I wasn't sure about this idea because uh-huh. it's like, again, black has like eight, eight options and all of them are playable or half playable or tricky for white. Uh, so the amount of like risk that you take with white is quite high. And you're just hoping like you're just hoping that your knowledge of the position is enough to compensate the fact that his position is quite decent or even objectively slightly better. Right. Like that. That's a risk that you're willing to take. Um, it's probably the only way to make a huge impact in the openings these days, I think. But yeah, we saw a lot of, um, like one of the most popular openings is, uh, is the Italian now, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is, uh, it gives both sides so much room for creativity because it's not a concrete opening at all. You have like a million ways to approach it. And then you just accept that it's an equal position, but it's a game. And now we just play chess. That's, that's like the, um. Uh, like if someone really wants to fight, they're going to play the Italian. That's that's basically the uh, the way it goes in in modern chess. That's one opening I've stayed away from, like online and like in tournaments. It's so intimidating to just try and keep up with like all the merging theory and like and all the move orders. Yeah, all the move orders too. Yeah. It's like it seems like a maze of variations. That yeah, like, it's a, it's a total nightmare. I uh-huh. I hate analyzing that opening. <laughs> I played with black because I just hate the Petrov playing the Petrov. I used to play it when I was a Petrov kid. Petrov scares me too, yeah. I, I just played it when I was a kid and mm-hmm. occasionally basically got me bored of chess, just playing mm-hmm. the Petrov. I know that's not the case for you. 
Any no, I'm like, uh, especially please, nowadays. please play the Petrov, anything besides the Berlin, <laughs> anything which isn't the Berlin. And I have to face the Italian with black whenever I go knight c6, and I get confused all the time. I stayed away as white, I never played the Italian as white, uh, but I feel like that type of situation, that type of uh, conversion is happening with the Petrov right now. There's so many things and so many new details, especially with the emergence of like new engines and whatnot. You find new life in a lot of uh, variations in the Petrov as well. And uh, there's a lot of new details, for example, in the game against Lenier. You, we found that idea with H3 yeah. early on. Yeah. Um, not a lot of people have played it, or some people have played it, but only occasionally online. And if you don't know the precise move order, mm -hmm. then you're going to get in trouble. I feel that's what's happening right now with the Petrov. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, well, I think that all openings are expanding really massively, right? Uh, and the Petrov is one of them. But I actually have like, I'm a bit bitter about the Petrov because in 2017, I started playing two openings for the first time. I've told you this, right? And uh, one is the Petrov and the other is the Queen's Gambit Accepted. And once I started playing these openings, every, the entire chess world, all the like chess articles were like, is he ready to retire? How can you play these openings? Like, is, are, you, are you 70 years old? Like, how can you play the Petrov? And now everyone, in the world plays the Petrov and the Queen's Gambit accepted. Like when Maxime starts playing the Queen's Gambit accepted, you know that that it's a trend. And like where where was this energy when I was playing it? Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was getting so much hate for this. And now now they're like the most popular openings in the world. And sometimes when you're a hipster in in a certain opening you can get a lot of flack in the beginning and takes takes time for like, people. Like to the Stafford it. Gambit. Yeah. yeah Stafford or, or London has like this very um uh divisive nature about it where it's like a lot of uh, usually among like kind of the average reddit chess user like a lot of people hate it because it's boring and people just play the setup but it has a lot of venom if you if you know it well and i think it's also gone through its trend yeah i i kind of heard this or like i saw memes about like people hating the london and right. I, I thought it was like a fighting opening to get uh, a fight you know because you you kind of just play like a a sort of complicated middle game position without you know very concrete variations and i like i didn't understand why why it's supposed to be so boring but it's an interesting opening also because it's um it was like always considered harmless for decades and decades and then mm -hmm. suddenly people realize it's it's there's a lot of venomous ideas yeah. if uh if black's not prepared and that reminds me i've in the early days of my streaming career, we had some bullet match. We did. I was yeah, playing the yeah. count. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in one of those games, <laughs> you stopped playing the Grunfeld and you started playing like some Nimzo setup. Wow. And then like a week or two later, you mentioned that like Fabiano took over in a few of those games. I don't know if you, you remember, but uh, in one of those games, yeah. like I, I caught I caught one of you guys in this like super tricky was I, line. Was I, I remember streaming? this? Was I, I remember this? Or, what, what, I don't think you were streaming. I, no, I, we I made streaming. Yeah, yeah. We were, we were just hanging out. And for some reason, I started playing. I don't remember why. And uh, But and one of the games, I won in like 12 moves because you ran into this like C4, D5 idea and Queen A4 and then some like double checkmate in the end. Okay, please um, don't ban me. Yeah. So uh, for account sharing. Right. Yes. <laughs> <Account> sharing <laughs> this is the second cheating scandal oh, this week. <laughs> Oh, please don't drag me into that. But wait, I did mention it. Yeah, I guess I mentioned it on, on a stream or... 
Um, I mentioned it to you. You, you mentioned it that? to me. Like there was mutual understanding. Probably. Then, like a few months later, I showed I showed this game in the St. Louis Chess Club London lecture, <laughs> but I I wasn't sure if I was playing you or you. So I, I didn't <laughs> know what the point was. I think I'm, I may have done this. Yeah. I think I may have lost. Okay. Very quickly. Off to dig up the game. We at some point we played a match too. Like, really? I think it was Bullet or something. On, but from his account. No, no, on mine. Oh. But it was like an anonymous account. It was on Lee Chess. Oh. This was a long time ago. Do I, you I don't remember, remember your account name? It was always been Bombogranite. Oh, yeah, we played. Yeah. I thought that was someone else. No, that's that's me. That's... Oh, I thought that was Akshat Chandra. Oh, okay. No, no. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> not sure. I thought I should up our take that as a compliment. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I picked that name because at some point I was playing this um, mobile game, Plants vs. Zombies, like... And one of the plants you can use is called the bombogranate. Like, it's like bombogranate, like 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 a, like a pomegranate, pomegranate, but it's a it like throws pomegranate. I see. Yeah. Wow. So like a bomb, bombogranate. Well, I remember we played on ICC back when you were you were ad adaptation. Right? Yeah. Okay. What was your what was your uh, handle on there? I was Roger Federer. Oh, okay, yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But I went through a bunch of names on ICC. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Mine was dictator. First one, ICC, then play chess. Then I uh, took that, I think, to chess.com for a few years, and then it became the count. Mm. I think when I started uh, doing commentary for the St. Louis Chess Club, then everybody was like, yeah, he sounds like the count. So I was like, yeah, sure. The count sounds good. Yeah, let's let's go with that. You had at some point uh, like a bit on the, on the broadcast called the Count's Corner. Count's Corner, yeah. Count's Corner, yeah. <laughs> Those were uh, the, 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 the first couple of years, I think, when I was doing broadcast with uh, St. Louis Chess Club. Then we came up with this idea of setting up a corner actually next to the studio and just have this count's corner. I guess it, it was just rhyming and it was something. That... I love the special effects that they use with the bats flying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Those great. were good. Yeah. Those were good. Yeah, I, ha I had a lot of time with uh, I had a good time with the count's corner for sure. Mm -hmm. Good old days. Good old days. Well, Eric. It's been uh, great. Thanks a lot. Do Thanks you have so any much. questions for us? Oh, dear. You get to ask us one question. Okay. So now that the tournament is over, what do you do with your life? Like, do you, <laughs> do you keep studying chess? Do you try and keep finding opening ideas? Like, what's your routine for It just, weeks? like, stuff never ends. That's the thing. Uh -huh. It's, uh, I don't ever really get a break. I mean, I, I have a break from, like, tournament playing, kind of. But there's like the chess 960 and then the global chess championship and there's maybe going to be something else in some other online event in between and uh now that we have this podcast up and running this is also going to take probably a significant portion of time to you know to film and uh to create new content and so it just like it never stops which is good because I, I get bored otherwise mm -hmm. do you guys have like uh a list of guests you want for future episodes is is it usually a guest format because i saw the first episode um just, just you guys it, it initially and i think we're just going to keep it mixed mm -hmm. we're basically going to have episodes where it's just me and fabi we're going to have episodes when there's guests but since we are in st louis and there's tournaments going on there's going to be a lot of uh people available mm -hmm. and um yeah i mean if we're in st louis and, and the thing is we have a setup where it kind of is difficult to travel around and um so it's easy once we're in st louis once we have so many players available to shoot a couple of videos and 
basically do it um, in this format. But generally, yes, it's going to be a mix between just me and Fabi and having guests. We're, we're thinking of well. getting Elon on. Elon? Yeah, to talk about chess technology. We probably need to get to a million subs <laughs> before we can get Elon on the podcast. But Elon, if you're looking to find more about those uh, those beads you were mentioning, uh, come on the podcast, we'll discuss all are those. You, are you an expert? All those <laughs> theories, yes, they, they, they will be discussed for sure. Eric, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you guys. Thank you. Um, any shout outs? Uh, where can people find you? Oh, uh, the first shout out, subscribe on YouTube. It helps the channel grow. I saw you guys are almost at a thousand subscribers. Two thousand almost. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Okay. Thank let's you. get to 10K. 10K. Uh, after this episode is, is released. Um, but yeah, I think people can figure out where to find me. Twitch, YouTube, uh, Twitter, Instagram can Google me, but, uh, any big projects coming up? Um, maybe, I don't know. Anything actually. you can reveal? Uh, some things might have to stay secret, but, uh, I'll probably be going to Toronto for this global chess championship. And then I have like a lot of sponsorship integrations. Uh, my hello fresh box just arrived. So I'll be doing a cooking stream. I'll be doing, uh, something with audible later this month. And then something with the, um, the chess up smart board. It's a really cool smart board that lights up. So um, yeah, some things to, to look forward to. Awesome, Eric, always an innovator in the world of chess. We appreciate you and I'm sure you'll be back on the podcast. Hopefully. Thanks guys. Well, thank you. <laughs>